0: Thirty messages, uh, some deep diving into some challenging topics. We are finally at the end of our series in the book of Revelation. Um, this has been the hardest preaching series I have ever done as a pastor. And perhaps it's been the hardest preaching series you have ever had to listen to as a listener. Um, but thanks for hanging on through this. And Uh, We began in the beginning, in the introduction, uh, 16 months ago, talking about the blessing that this book promises. Um, And we'll end today looking really at the blessing, the final promise of blessing that this book promises. This has really been the reason for our series, the reason that we've dug into the book of Revelation, uh, besides the fact that it's a big old book right there in the New Testament that Uh, We need to address kind of often the elephant in the room, and so we need to address it. It, It's important. But because it promises blessing. Blessing to us, instead of how it often functions for Christians as a, a point of curiosity full of confusion and controversy. So I think that's how it often is for us, and that's really not how it's supposed to function. It's supposed to be a blessing. So I trust as we've gone through these 30 messages and then 31 today, that, that you have at least begun to experience a, a shift in how you relate to the book of Revelation and have begun to experience a blessing. Um, there are particulars to that blessing we'll get into today. Um, our final section, chapter 22, verses 6-21, to is a, uh, a great summary of the entire book and it will serve as a fitting conclusion. Uh, and give us, I believe, also some key take-home lessons. Um, Let me open with an illustration, and then we'll read. Um, When the kids were younger, uh, Peg and I have four adult children, now, all in their 20s. And when they were younger, I wasn't a pastor, I was an engineer, and I would travel at times in my role as an engineer. Uh, And often, I left Peg with the young kids at home. She had to carry the responsibilities of the whole family, and And I left her with that just because I had to travel. And I left uh, really the kids without my immediate presence, the immediate presence of of a father there for oversight and love. I trust I normally provided. So um, I wasn't there. And so what I would do when I traveled was I would prepare them for my absence. Uh, And we would tell them what was going on, that I'd be going away and be gone. Uh, But would also tell them that I'd be back soon. So each time, we would prepare them for my absence by saying I would be away and then saying I would be back soon. And also that um, I was going to be reachable while I was gone, that I'd be talking with mom and so forth. And, and uh, that was important for them to know, that I wasn't entirely absent. Uh, I could always talk on the phone. Um, and uh, when I got home, it was my regular practice uh, for me to bring gifts. And so I would get gifts while I was away, and when I came home, say it would be a Friday, a Friday evening or something like that, maybe a Saturday depending on the trip, um, we would gather together and I would give them gifts. And so it was like a little Christmas that we would have after these trips. And, and I think all these things, uh, I did it because I love my kids and my wife. Uh, that's why we did it this way. But I think it, it had an impact on the children in, in as far as how to deal with my absence. How to not just behave while I was absent, but even how to orient themselves uh, while I was absent. And I think in some ways, they, they actually looked forward to m- me going away because they, they knew at the end there were gifts as well. Um, and I think you could ask any of them about that. Back when they were little, we, we did that. Um, so, all that to say that through what, doing those things, through preparing them, uh, through explaining to them, and then through coming back and bringing gifts, they lived that week in my absence with a strong sense of my presence as a dad and that was the goal well guys the book of revelation is really about this as well it's given to us to help us live in the physical absence of christ with a strong awareness of his presence day to day and with that to behave in line with that but also to have a sense of His nearness and a sense of the reward that's coming. The sense of what this is all about. That's that's what this book is about. And this final section we're going to look at today uh, does a great job of of reiterating that and focusing on that. I could sum up the book and I could sum up this section by saying that the, the person promises and a, imminent appearance of Jesus, the person and promises an imminent appearance of Jesus motivate us to live for Him now in His physical absence. The person promises an imminent appearance of Jesus motivate us to live for Him now and not to be duped and distracted by the world and the devil. Even, even if it means persecution and trial. The person promises an imminent appearance of Jesus motivate us to live for Him now no matter what the cost because it will all be worth it. That's really the message of the book. We've heard again and again. It's the message of this section. Let's pray and ask the Lord in this final message in the series to to remind us and refresh us in these truths and more than that, to actually change us because we all need to learn these truths and be changed by them. Whether you feel like you have a grasp of these or not, You don't have a full grasp. I don't have a full grasp. And we need the Lord to change us in light of these truths. So let's pray and ask Him to do that. So Lord, we thank You. Thank You for these truths. Thank You for this wonderful book. Thank You, Lord, for how You care about us and You want to help us in Your physical absence. Uh, You're not here. The, The fullness of the kingdom has not come yet. And You care about us, so thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And I pray Your Word today, as it's taught and proclaimed, would have the effect in our lives that we would learn how to live in this time. Uh, Anticipating Your presence, Your full presence and Your appearance. Help me to teach and proclaim, and Lord, speak to us and be glorified, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Follow along with me in chapter 22, verse 6 to the end it says, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay everyone for what He has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit <coughs> Excuse me. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. God's Word from Revelation chapter 22. So I want to review this section and learn these three key lessons about the person, the promises, and appearance of Jesus. How they uh, motivate us to live for Him, to reject the world and the devil. So first, the person of Jesus. We've seen Jesus presented throughout this book. We've seen Him presented in this section. We've seen Him presented throughout this book early on. Uh, In the early chapters, we meet Jesus. We meet a vision of Jesus that John has where He appears in glory. He appears with white hair and eyes like a flame of fire. His feet are like bronze in a furnace. A voice like thunder. And He's walking amidst the churches in His glory. And now here in this final section as well, we see Jesus in His glory. Uh, In verse 1, In verse 6, actually, we meet Him. He's the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, who has sent His angel to bring revelation. Uh, He has brought this book. He is behind this book coming to us and these truths coming to us for our sake, for the churches. It's interesting, uh, as you see uh, Him declare these things uh, and and speak of the blessing, that John uh, hears them, and then John falls down at the angel's feet to worship Him. Um, and there's a connection here. There's a truth here. This isn't here merely because it happened. It's here because there's a lesson for us in it. Now John uh, doesn't make this mistake for the first time here actually. This is the second time he does that. Earlier on in chapter 19, he did the same thing. And it's actually interesting to look at that verse in chapter 19 to learn uh, why this is here. So uh, you can turn to Revelation 19, 9-10. We have it up uh, on, the, on the wall here. you to read and it's almost the same sort of wording here and it says there and he said to me these are the true words of God then I fell down at his feet to worship him but he said to me you must not do that I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God and then it says for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy so what's going on in both cases John is uh, overwhelmed by this angel uh, these angels are actually quite glorious. There, there are no cute and cuddly angels in the Bible, by the way. Uh, that's how we see them, right? The cute and cuddly the cherubs and all that. And, and people talk about you know, just these angels in and, and, and ways that are you know, not like the Bible. In the Bible, angels are terrifying. Um, they're terrifying not because they're, they're evil, they're good. They're good. Uh, they're terrifying because they're glorious. They're great. They shine with glory. And so John is interacting with this angel and, and he's a glorious angel. And he's speaking for God. And there's times actually in the book of Revelation uh, and elsewhere in the Bible where it's not clear actually, like, is this actually God or is this an angel? So they're representing God. And so it's, it's understandable actually for John to, to be overwhelmed and to bow before the angel. What's interesting though is the angel's response. The angel says I'm a fellow servant with you Uh, we are fellow servants together um, and with you and your brothers uh, the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book so we are fellow servants and so we're right alongside you and don't worship us worship God Um, how does that fit here why is this here what is it trying to say well I think there's a a truth behind this that's really important. Um, The truth is that all these things that are being shown here, all these amazing things, revelations from angels, incredible things in in Scripture, all these things here are not meant to function by themselves. They're not meant to function on their own. These angels, their, their whole point is to point people to Jesus. So the glory of the angel, the messages of the angel, and the things that are said are meant to point to Jesus, are meant to get your focus on God so that you worship God. And that's that's why this is included here. John makes the mistake of worshiping the angel and being awed by the angel's message and missing the whole point of the angel. It says it actually explicitly in Revelation 19.10. Passage, same sort of occurrence here, but in chapter 19 it says at the end, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the angel says, it's not about me. It's not about the message. It's not about this revelation itself. Ultimately, who I am and what I am saying is meant to point to Jesus. And so, in Revelation, that's an important point. Actually, it's an important point for all of us. and. That it's about Him. And that's what we see in this passage. We see it elsewhere. Jesus is described in glorious terms here. He's described in verse 13 as the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Everything starts with Him. Everything exists through Him. Everything ends in giving glory to Him. He's the beginning and the end. He, He, as God the Son, along with God the Father and God the Spirit, they are the ultimate source they are the center and they are the focus of all of history. It's about Him. It's about Jesus. It's about God. He describes Himself in verse 16 in this section as the root and descendant of David. This is speaking of, of the promise of the Messiah, of this King that would come. And Jesus is this King. So we see that in Isaiah and 2 Peter. It speaks of, of Him in these ways. And the bright morning star as well, and that's from 2 Peter and elsewhere. Uh, and it, it describes him saying he's the root and descendant of David as he's the fulfillment. He's the promised king. He is the fulfillment of this king who would come to finally rule in goodness and justice and rescue his people and to rule all the nations. He's the bright morning star. Again, from verse 16. He's that first light that pierces the darkness, that rises after a dark night and pierces the darkness and fills with darkness Light. He's come as that morning star. He's come in His life, in His ministry, in His miracles, in His truth, in His death, the vicarious death for His people on the cross and resurrection, as light to pierce the darkness, to bring the day, the day that will come in fullness of light and dawn in a new creation upon His return without any more darkness. That's who He is. It's all from Him and through Him and to Him. And so, all of this together in this passage and really all of Revelation has a really important message for us. It's about Him. The Person of Jesus alongside the Father with the Holy Spirit. The the three Persons of the One God. It's about them. It's about Him. And we can make the mistake going through the book of Revelation. We can do this uh, with other books too, but we can make the mistake in Revelation to focus on these other things to focus on the glorious angels and the meaning of the angels and their attire and so forth, we can focus on on the different people here in the book. We can focus on the one hundred and forty four thousand and what exactly is that and there's debate and discussion on that, and we've talked about it, but we can focus on that and, and make that the point we can Focus on the nations and what nations are being represented and who are they and what's going on. We can focus on lots of other things that are in creation as well. The glories of creation. We can look at the book and we can wonder, well, what's the date? Where, what is the date when He's going to come back? When Jesus will come back? We can focus on the millennium. Is it literal or symbolic or some mix? What is it about? And we could come away from the book of Revelation focusing on these things. The mark of the beast. That's what it's about. I heard that in Sweden right now. They're using electronics to mark people. That's, that's the mark of the beast. I know it. That's, I've learned that from the book of Revelation. I know what's going on. Modern day prophecy at work. That's what it's about. You could do that. Who the beast is. Is, is it Nero or is it somebody now or is it both? Guys, these all have their proper place. All these things have their proper place, but they're to orbit around Jesus. He is the center. He is the center of the universe. He is the center of all things. It's about Him. And and if we miss that point with this book, we've missed really the main point. It's about Jesus. He has rescued His people. He's reigning. He's returning. Put your faith in Him. It will all be worth it. All all things that you do following Him will be worth it. No matter what you might face. No matter what challenges you might have. Put your faith in Jesus. It's about Him from beginning to end. We forget this truth, don't we? It's easy to forget this truth. Uh, We we can draw our attention on other things and, and off of Jesus and not see that He's the key. He's really the key to the entire universe in all of existence, it's really a key to life to recognize that Jesus is the center. That's the lesson, one of the lessons we see here. It's a lesson we need. Uh, some years ago, Peg and I were part of a church uh, in Boston. We were in our 20s at the time. It was a great church, um, and it was in the, in, in the inner city. We interacted with a lot of interesting people. Learned a lot of lessons back in those times. And one day we had a visitor who came into the church and sat in our sanctuary during one of our gatherings. Uh, At the end of the time, she said to one of the leaders, I really like that sign you have over the altar. Um, And our friend said, you mean the one from Psalm 46.10, which we heard about last week, that says, be still and know that I am God? And she said, yes, I really like that sign. You know, it's important at times just to, to be still and remember, I am God. And what she meant is, she thought she was God. And for her, it was really important to come in and be still and remember that I am God. Uh, it was almost funny because it was so absurd that, and that she saw it that way. But that's what she was thinking. And, and we can think, wow, that she's really off and that's funny. But you know what? At times, we're not that far off of that. There are times when, when we can think that it's about us. It's about us. It's about what we think and what we feel and what we need. But it isn't. It's not that God doesn't love us. We we know he loves us. Matter of fact, he loves us uh, as uh, the Father loves us as if his own son, as if, as if he loves his own son. He's given his son for us. There's a deep deep love he has for us. So it's not that God doesn't love us, but it's not about us ultimately. His love draws us in to focus on something far greater than ourselves. Focus on something for for what we're made. God Himself. It's about Him and, and it's about loving Him and living in Him. It's ultimately about Him in every way. And we see that in this passage. We are to focus on Him. We're to orbit everything around Him. We're to find our life in Him. We're to rely on Him. So in light of this series on Revelation, let's make Revelation and all of life about Jesus, not ourselves. It's just so important to get that. I think for our growth in our Christian faith, our life, we need to realize that. And you might be struggling as a Christian um, because you're not facing and walking through this reality. That that you maybe you know you you've memorized Bible verses and you're seeking to do the right thing, but you've forgotten that it's not about you, and that life comes actually through death. Life comes when you take up your cross and follow Him. When you die to yourself and your preferences, and you die to putting yourself at the center. You die to putting your feelings at the center of your life. You die to put to put your uh, opinions at the center of your life. You die to these things and you put Jesus first. You die to yourself and you look to Jesus. You live in Him and live in His love. That's how we're meant to live. Death to self. Life in Him. And we come alive in Jesus and it's so different. The man who loves his life will lose it. While the man who loses his life will find it in Jesus. This truth is so important. This book is meant to function this way in all of its aspects. It's about God. It's about Jesus. So let's focus on Him. The Person of Jesus motivates us to live for Him. Second, the promises. Flowing from the greatness of the Person of Jesus and all the Godhead are are the promises we have in Christ. These promises motivate us. They motivate us to endure. And this book is jam-packed with promises from beginning to end. And so, in verse 7, we encounter a promise right away. It says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's a blessing that comes from keeping these words. The words of this prophecy. Now, what does it mean when it says that? Do you have to keep every single thing that's there? and you have to memorize Revelation? Uh, No, I think there's a core message in this book. And we've been talking about it. This core message of trusting in Christ. And Enduring. In life, holding on to Jesus as He holds on to us. Living for Him and not compromising, not giving in to the pressures of this world. Trusting Him and looking forward to the reward that He brings. That's that's the message. And so, there's a blessing here promised to the One who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's an eternal blessing that's coming for you and for me as we keep the words, as as we depend on Christ, as we... Choose to endure and not give up. Trusting in His promises. That's, that's a blessing right there. And, it, and it's connected to, to what He says shortly after this. There's another blessing spoken of in this section as well. It says in verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And this is connected to this blessing of keeping the words of of Revelation itself. There's a blessing for those who wash their robes. Well, what does that mean? Well, we can look elsewhere in the book of Revelation and see uh, where there are robes that are washed. So in chapter 7, earlier on, we ran into this section in Scripture where there are robes that get washed. So let's go there to understand uh, what it means here in chapter 22. In chapter 7, uh, what's going on there? Uh, it's the perfect number of the people of God who are there worshiping the Lord. And as I taught back then, I think it represents the entire people of God. Um, it, it's 144,000, a, a perfect number representing the perfect number of the people of God. God knows what He's doing. And they are worshiping. And it, it says there, uh, they're wearing white robes and they're worshiping and enjoying God before the throne. And then it says this in verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And tribulation is really the, the whole time period of between Christ's resurrection and return is a time of tribulation. Then there's a final tribulation. So these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb." So same reference, washing of robes. And here they are made white in the blood of the Lamb. Now that doesn't seem to make sense. Why would you wash robes in blood to make them white? Well, it's symbolic, right? It's picturing something that's really significant. Really important. See, the reality is that we all wear robes. and Robes really represent our lives and our character, um, the, the legacy of our lives, the things that we've done, the, the, the heart and character of who we are. That's really what the robes are. And the reality is that nobody has a white robe. All of us have robes that are stained, one way or the other. And they're meant to be white, they're meant to be perfect. The other day, actually, I was wearing a shirt. I like to get shirts from Savers. This one actually is from Savers. Uh, I get really nice shirts, uh, brand name shirts for like five bucks. Uh, though the price has gone up a little bit now that everyone's going there. I went about two years ago when it opened and everything was cheap. But anyhow, I get shirts at Savers. The other day I had one of my Savers shirts on and I looked down and there was a hole right here on my shirt. And I somehow had missed it. And I thought, you know what, uh, I can't like, keep on wearing that shirt because it's got a hole right there. But it's just one little tiny hole. Like it's, it's like of the whole shirt, you know, it's like... 1,000th of a percent of the whole shirt. But it's right there. And because of that, it's a useless shirt, right? Um, And that's a picture of of the robes we wear. We might say we only got one little speck in our lives, which, by the way, I don't think is true. But anyhow, maybe you think you only have a little speck, but it only takes one speck to make it no longer a spotless, perfect robe. Now the reality in Scripture is that we have way more than one speck. And the reality of the, the sadness of... The fall of humanity is that in our fall, it affected all of us uh, in, in every way. So you may look at your life and think I only got a speck, but upon deeper examination, if you look at your life in light of scripture, you'll see what is true is that actually the whole the whole shirt is not the color it's supposed to be. It's gray, it's brown, it's stained. And there may be blotches here and there and stuff, and then some spots like, well, right there, right there, it's a white robe. See it? See the white right there? Nice robe right there, but the, the fact is the rest of it is dirty and stained. That's the reality of humanity. And we all know it. And we don't like it. We, we like to think we're okay. But the reality that we all know is that, that we fall short. We fail to love as we ought. We feel, fail to love God. Uh, there are lots of places in Scripture that talk about this. We have a bunch of verses from Romans. And, and a good, good verses to know. And Romans teaches us along with the rest of Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is, is the perfect and right ways He intends for all of us. And we know they're right. We know it's good. It's summed up this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Good stuff. We, we know that's right. And there are particulars that come with that. Everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And Scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death and judgment. That the the result, the right and just response from God towards sin and rebellion against Him is to bring death, to bring separation. God is the one who brings life. And we rebel against Him, and so we're put away from Him. That's what death is and judgment. It tells us in, in Romans 3 that there's none righteous, not one. There's nobody. Nobody has a white robe. Everybody has a stained robe. Everybody has marks on their robe. All have turned away. All have exchanged the goodness and glory of God for something else. And that's really the heart at the core of sin is saying, you know what? I don't want You, God. I want this thing. Anything but You. That's, that's the insanity of humanity. And because of that, our robes are stained. They're darkened. They're dirty. They're not white. And yet, we see in Revelation a promise of, of cleansing. A promise of washing our robes somehow that they might be white. That they might be presentable. That they might not only be presentable, but glorious. Isaiah chapter 1, God says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God wants us to be cleansed and to be clean in Him. And so in Romans chapter 3, we learn more about the story. We learn more about the story that it's not just about the fact that our robes are dirty and we stand before God guilty as charged, but there is a rescue, there's a cleansing. So Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, we got that. And then it says this, And are justified. Are justified. Are are counted and treated righteous. That's what what it means to be justified. Are justified how? By washing their robes really well in their own self-effort to somehow have enough white spots on their robes that God gives them a passing grade? No. Are justified how? By His grace. As a gift. Grace. Grace. Unearned favor and blessing given as a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't clean your own robe. It's cleansed by someone else somehow by a gift. And it says how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the rescue of Jesus that's in Jesus. How does that work? Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. What's a propitiation? It's a putting off of wrath. And in the case of the Bible, it's a putting off of just wrath. The just wrath of God towards sin. The just response of God in our rebellion against Him because our stains are not just stains, they are statements against God. And Christ came and is put forward as a sacrificial offering by His blood. His blood is poured out on the cross. His life is given. God in the flesh the God man Jesus sheds his blood and dies on that cross to pay for our sins, so that there could be forgiveness for our offenses against God and acceptance, because now Christ presents himself in our stead, and his righteousness and his perfectly clean robes are now given to us. And it says in verse 25 to be received by working really hard and really being sincere. No? to be received by faith. Simple faith. Simply saying, I believe. The faith of the Bible is not I believe intellectually merely. It's I believe like I embrace this. I like this. I want this. I don't want the dirty robe thing. I don't want rebellion. I don't want that. I want life. I want to be clean. I want to be with Jesus. He's the One who washes our robes by His death on the cross. He pays for our sins and releases through faith a torrent of cleansing blood that washes our robes completely clean that they might be white. Pure, white, and glorious. Boy, that's such an important part of the book of Revelation. Such an important part of Christianity, and from that truth, having received it, all these other blessings flow. Because in the passage, right, it says, blessed are those, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. Just having your robes washed and clean before the Lord is a blessing. But there's more here, right? So that they may have the right to the tree of life. Isn't that glorious? In Jesus, having washed your robes as a gift received by faith, now you have a right to the tree of life. You have a right to receive healing and everlasting life in Him. You have a right to the tree of life. You have a ticket into the city. You can come in by the gates welcomed as a citizen, beloved and honored. You have a right to the tree of life and that you may enter the city by the gates. All this stuff we've talked about, the promise of this city, this picture of eternal glory and the glorious presence of God who is the source and center of all glory. All glorious things that you experience and see come from Him. Truly good and glorious things. And in that city, we saw it's a transparency that shines with the glory of God represented by light. So all that's good about God in His creation, in His person, in His character, in His nearness, and all the things that come with that are yours to experience and behold and reflect and glory in forever and ever, all because you simply came to Jesus by faith. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that you might have a right to the tree of life, and that you may enter the city by the gates. What an amazing promise and blessing for us. Now, I can't gloss over the other side of these promises. There's a negative side to the promises here. There are negative promises in this section in verses 15, 18, and verse 10. There are those who do not wash their robes. There are those who don't run to Jesus. There are those who continue to live in their rebellion against God. And there's a promise for them. We see it again and again here. There's recompense that Jesus is bringing. He's bringing reward, and it's reward a blessing for His people who run to Him, but it's a reward of punishment of others. They are outside of the city. They are sentenced to, to eternal separation from God. Eternal just punishment for their sins. There's, there's no mercy should they not turn to Jesus. They receive a punishment that is without mercy for their choices, without mercy, without end, without hope for eternity. There's nothing worse, guys. Yet in this life, they most likely chose the things they did. They chose not to receive Jesus because they they thought it was better. It was easier. They didn't have to face ridicule. They didn't have to die to themselves. They could still kind of keep themselves as the center of their lives. It seemed good for a while. It seemed worth it. For a while, but it will not be worth it in the least. And the message of Revelation is a message for two classes of people in regards to these negative promises. First, those who have not yet run to Jesus. Boy, there are promises related to that here, right? It says at the end, uh, it says, The one who is thirsty, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you are thirsty, come. You can receive. You don't have to do anything but turn away from that other stuff and trust in Jesus. It's that simple. It's that simple. Simple faith. There's there's an invitation throughout the book of Revelation to those who have not yet run to Jesus to run to Jesus and find cleansing and life in Him. And then the other class of people it speaks to are Christians who would look at what they have in Jesus and then look at what it costs them at times in life because of trial, because of persecution, because of ostracization from society and all the other things that might come and say, you know what, it, it's not really worth it. And give up on Jesus. It's meant for Christians. And if you are genuinely a Christian, we've talked about this, and written in the Lamb's, you are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before time began, so there's a sovereign God over that, but you will walk out your life in such a way as when you hear these warnings, That if you give this up, this is what you get, you'll respond by saying, no way, I'm never giving it up. I'm going to hold on to Jesus. And so it functions in our lives in this way. And so it's speaking to Christians too to not give up. It will be worth it all in the end. 1992, uh, Peg and I bought a house in Boston. Um, And it was our first house that we bought. We co-bought it with friends on Mission Hill. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's near the hospitals in Fenway. Uh, it's in Roxbury, Roxbury, Jamaica Plain area. Uh, and our house was near the top of the hill. It was a two-family, double-lot uh, house. Had great views of Fenway Park and, and Back Bay. But it was a bad area. Um, we were robbed multiple times. Um, lots of stories we can tell about that. But it was our first house. So 150000 we bought the house. We were there. And then I uh, got transferred down to Maryland. And we moved down there, became part of a church there, and my job was there. Uh, and so we rented the house for like a year or two. And it just thought, you know, it's kind of a hassle, renting. I don't know if you've been, everyone, anyone here has been a landlord, but it can be a hassle. And we thought, you know, just not a priority in our lives. So we sold our half of the house to our friends. 1992, $150,000. Our friends stayed for a while, then they sold it. And just recently, I was checking the price of our house on Mission Hill. Uh, you can look it up, 194, 196, Calumet Street in Boston, 02120. Um, I checked the, the price of the house just a little while ago, about a six months or maybe a year ago. Anyone have a guess? Now, if I've told you this story, don't shout it out. Anyone have a guess of the value of that property? 150000 in 1992. Anyone want to guess? You can shout out. Seven. $750, yeah. You're getting there. $2.2 million. $2.2 million. Yep, you're thinking what I'm thinking. Why did we sell our share? Actually, you know what they did actually with the house is they, the, someone recently sold it and then sold off the lot. They built another house on that lot. So now the whole thing's like $4 million, the two, the two houses. Now, I don't share that to tell you never sell real estate. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that you have some serious real estate and Jesus don't ever sell it it'll be worth far more than 2.2 or 4 million dollars it'll be worth everything and living for him now and enduring through some of the hardship will be well worth it he promises to never leave you or forsake you Through the difficulties, He's there with you. He will give you the grace you need. Don't sell what you have in Jesus. Finally, and very quickly, um, not only does the person of Christ and the promises of Christ motivate us, but the appearance of Christ. We see it very clearly in this section of Scripture five different times. He says, I'm coming soon. We've seen this throughout this letter. There's an immediacy. There's a sense, really two senses of His nearness, of the imminence of His return. One is that He will come soon. It could be at any moment. He will come and conclude all things. The final judgment will come at any moment. There's an imminence of that, a soonness that we should live. It could happen at any point. But there's also in, in Revelation, we've seen there's a... A nearness of even his work throughout history, and as we looked at the different cycles of judgment and so forth, we we saw that some of these were things that happened back already. Right, it opens up in the beginning, speaking to seven representative churches that lived way back in the year fifty, and they were going through struggles, and, and they're promised, I'm going to come soon and deal with this. And as we read through, we saw we saw some of these cycles and pictures that seemed to say that God came and brought judgment against the enemies of God's people and brought relief. And now we know historically that happened through, through the uh, fall of Jerusalem and through the Roman Empire eventually falling. So those things we see. And, and there are connections we can make with people like Nero and God, God's work. So there, there is a second sense that goes along with that that Jesus is still reigning through it all. And He knows what's going on and, and He in time will bring relief to His people as they trust in Him. So there's a soonness there. And that's in line with what we see elsewhere in Scripture. Matthew 24, if you read through there, you'll see Jesus speaks of of things that are going to happen very soon. And speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem. But then He starts to talk about the final ingathering of all the people of God. And that's obviously at the very end. So it's the soonness, presently and then the soonness of the final work that's coming. And so we're to live anticipating His appearance. Both working through time and reigning and ruling and dealing with injustices now, but ultimately coming back and appearing. And so we're to live like my children did when I was on travel. Ever aware of His presence, even in His physical absence, ever ready to receive our reward upon His return. He's coming soon. Let's live for him, if the band could come up as we conclude. The person, the promises, and the appearance of Jesus motivate us to always live for him, to reject the world and the devil. He's coming soon. Uh, in the story of, of Robin Hood, um, Robin Hood is a man who, with his gang, they rob from the rich and give to the poor, but they actually do that because a usurper has come and taken over the kingdom, evil King John. And they are loyal subjects of King Richard, the Lionhearted. And they're trying to get by, they're trying to, to help during the oppression of this usurper. And the storyline uh, goes that King Richard eventually does come back. And he shows up, he's disguised as a monk, and a, as an abbot, and, and actually Robin Hood robs him. Uh, and they take him into the camp and they end up uh, interacting and he befriends him, but he doesn't know that it's the king. And they're talking. and, and uh, and they speak in the storyline that they are doing all these things because they're anticipating King Richard coming back. And that's the moment where King Richard stands up and takes his cloak off. And they see his mail and they see the emblem of, of the king. And they, they all bow to King Richard at that moment. And they realize he's come back. And they're shocked, but they're celebrating his return. Guys, we, we live, we are to live like Robin Hood. There's a usurper who has much control over the world now, but there's work to be done. We're to live for God in this world and we're to anticipate the return of the King. And it won't come in disguise. It will be obvious when He comes. But He will come. And we're to live ever aware aware of His imminent presence. Let's just take a minute and ask the Lord to reveal to us just, is there any way in my life that I'm not living in light of these things? Is there any way that I've been tempted to give up on Jesus? Sell my real estate? Find pleasure apart from Him? All things are meant to be in Him and for Him and He has things for us to enjoy and to use, but, but they're meant to be with Him. So maybe there's something in your life one way or the other. Maybe, this, maybe it's just even how you react to hardship. You know, it could just be how you react to those who are closest to you when you're tempted. And how you're selling Jesus out in that case is you're relying on your own strength to respond rather than saying, Jesus, help me to forgive and be gracious to this person. It can be in very practical ways like that. And if we continue in those ways, eventually we sell the whole thing. So it could be a little thing. It could be a big way. Just take a minute to pray. Say, Lord, examine my heart. uh, And then we'll come back uh, and we'll, we'll share communion together.